Alright, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you haven't got your Bibles, that's absolutely fine. Because I'm going to read it anyway. But if you have, then hopefully that'll help you. Are you going to be able to cope with this crackling away? You're not going to be able to manage it. Alright, I'll go with that microphone. I haven't got the same gift thing that Brendan has. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read from verse 12 to the end of verse 20, and this is what it says. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for the joy it brings. I thank you that it brings life. And Lord, as we stand around your word today, we we worship one and come to receive words from one who is alive. Well, Lord, would you minister to our hearts, Lord, to every individual in the room, whatever our beliefs, whatever the structure of our lives, would we go away having encountered you? In Jesus' name, amen. In a Good Friday, which we celebrated together just a few days ago, which is called Good Friday, because it's a wonderful day of celebrating the gospel, isn't it? It's a day when the gospel is placarded before our very eyes and we get to pause and see that Jesus Christ died in my place. Jesus Christ, as God himself, made it possible for me as an individual, for you as individuals, to know life and that in abundance, to know what it is to be forgiven of our sin, have it removed as far as the east is from the west, to know what it is to be justified, have the great judge of all put the gavel down on our lives and declare us to be righteous, not because of the way we live, but because of the way Jesus Christ lived. To know what it is to be reconciled to him, to be made back to him, not only coming back to him as judge, but coming back to him as father, adopted into his very family, not on a collision course with his wrath any longer, but on a collision course with meeting him for ourselves where we get to be with him for all eternity. That's the glories of the gospel. And that's what makes Good Friday Good Friday. I, I remember growing up as a kid thinking, what's so good about a guy dying? And that's kind of sick to call that good. And yet when you realize it was the day he saved us, you realize that's an amazing Friday. 
That's an incredible truth, and the truth that changes our lives. That's why Good Friday is Good Friday. As he declared, it is finished, it was finished. And a way for us to be completely saved had been made. But here's the thing I want to talk about today. On this day, Resurrection Sunday. And it's this, that if the resurrection hadn't actually happened, if indeed it was found to be true that the resurrection didn't happen, if indeed it was found that Jesus Christ didn't indeed rise from the dead in a bodily, physical fashion, then the whole of our faith and the whole of Christianity is futile. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15. See, there are some in this church, in 1 Corinthians, that are actually saying, I don't believe that people actually rise from the dead. And what Paul is making clear to them is, well, if you don't believe people rise from the dead, then Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then everything we believe is futile. In fact, we more than anyone are to be pitied. Because we're going around believing that we're forgiven, we're adopted, heaven is our home. But if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're all deluded. We're to be pitied more than anybody. Because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he wasn't who he said he was. He said he would rise from the dead, but if he didn't, then he's a liar, a lunatic. Everything we're believing is absolutely futile, and we are still dead then in our transgressions and sins. You see the seriousness of believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? But he says in verse 20, emphatically and loudly, that's what I like about Paul, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If this is true, that he didn't rise from the dead, then we're all wasting our time. Just, you know, drink coffee, go home, live a nice life, do whatever you want. And then when we die, we will perish. That's what he's talking about here. But in fact, Christ did rise from the dead. He did. Meaning it possible that we can be forgiven of our sin and can be adopted and can be redeemed and can know that heaven is our home. It's a fact because Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. But the thing I want to talk about then today, given the importance of this topic, given the significance of the resurrection, I want us to examine this one important and simple question. And it's this. What did Paul understood and seen that caused him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as fact. He says here, it's fact, verse 20, but in fact, I know it to be true, without any shadow of a doubt, it's factual that he rose from the dead. Well, what did he see that caused him to say that? What did he understood? What did he grasp in his life that caused him to say, I know this as fact to be true? You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then firstly, thanks for coming. I don't know who brought you, how you came to be here today, but I'm thrilled that you are. We love having people here that are visitors. Even more so, people that are not believers. They don't know Jesus Christ and yet they want to come and check it out. Listen, and if that's your situation, that was my situation once, once upon a time. And kind of, I get it. We're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about this dude that allegedly rose from the dead. There is something in us all, is the not, that goes, are you kidding me? You know, we'll be living in Peter Pan next. You know, it's just something in us that goes, we must be having a laugh. We're actually meant to believe 
that a guy rose from the dead. I get it. And I naturally think and thought exactly the same thing. But here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. Just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. I want to show you from Scripture why it is that Paul believes as fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And I want you to see that just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's not reasonable. And it is my hope that even as I share this as fact, that you will see Jesus for who he is as the true Son of God. You will believe that he died in your place and you will flee to him with all your might so that you can be forgiven of your sin and redeemed and adopted and know heaven is your home. That's my hope for you today. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, well, thanks for coming back. It's my hope for you that as you examine this scripture, you will be freshly amazed and freshly convicted and freshly convinced this is true. We worship the risen Lamb, and I trust it will inspire all of our faith. So what had Paul understood and seen that caused him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as fact? Well, six things. And they're just little things. There's no need to panic. You know, you're going to be here, not for too much longer. You will be back home for dinner. But six things that I want you to know that Paul understood that I want you to understand about how it is he can say that in fact Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Here's the first. Here's the first thing Paul knew. Number one, the Bible had always claimed that this would happen. First reason why he knows this to be a fact is because the Bible all the way through always claimed that this would happen, always claimed that some type of resurrection in the Messiah would occur. See, throughout the Old Testament, in the very early part of the New Testament, there are over 300 prophecies by 29 different voices that relate to Jesus Christ. That's a lot of prophecy. A lot of people that never met Jesus that are pointing forward to him, but do so in detail. Some of them talk about his life, talk about where he's going to be born, what he's going to be like. The book of Micah, is that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's pretty cool, especially when, you know, he is, you know. Then you receive a lot of prophecies about his death. Over 29 prophecies are actually fulfilled on the day of Jesus Christ's death and the way he died. You know, with all due respect, births and deaths are hard to sort of mimic. They happen to people when it's actually true. And there are some prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New that relate into Jesus' resurrection. As I take the book of Isaiah, for example, particularly Isaiah 53. Isaiah is a book of prophecy. It's all about pointing forward to things that were going to happen. Many things happened thousands of years ago. But there is some of Isaiah, written over 700 years before Jesus Christ was even born, that talks very specifically about him. As you get to chapter 53, and it talks about this one who's going to be a man of sorrows. One whose very own people are going to reject him who's not going to be able to be picked out in front of a crowd very easily, one who will be despised and rejected, and yet who will die for people. People who all like sheep have gone astray, but he's going to die for them, and in doing so, give them life and that in abundance. And in verse 10 of chapter 53, the writer, 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, says this. In verse 10 he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. That's a cool verse. Because here's how it works. 
says, It is the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Well, that's death. All the way through the Old Testament, if you're going to make an offering for sin, that involves death. What he's talking about here is Jesus Christ, when he comes, it will be the will of the Lord to put him to grief, to crush him, and indeed kill him. He will die as a consequence for sin. And then he says, and he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Well, how's he going to do that if he's dead? He's dead. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. In that moment, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. 700 years before Jesus Christ ever appeared on the scene, there's a prophecy that talks about how God will not only kill him, but he will rise again. He will prolong his days and he will see his offspring. 700 years. You could go a thousand years if you like. Go to Psalm 16. A thousand years before Jesus Christ was even born. You get this great psalm that's written by King David. It's written by and large as a description of the Christian life. Um, really to help Christians when times aren't so good. And so in verse 1, King David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's this delightful psalm of how we as Christians can take refuge in the Lord. And yet in verse 10, a thousand years before Jesus Christ is even born, he starts prophesying about Jesus Christ. And we read this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see decay. Well, here's the thing. King David died, and his bones are still around. Yeah, they have definitely decayed. His body is without doubt decayed. And if I could dig him up and show you, I would. He is a decaying mess. So what the heck is he on about? Well, he's not on about himself. He's on about the Holy One to come. The Messiah. Jesus Christ, the one who will come to take away the sin of the world, and when he comes, his soul would not be abandoned to Sheol. His Holy One will not see decay. Why? Because he'll rise again. He'll go on living. His body will never decay, because he'll only be dead for three days. And then he will rise and go on and receive the glory of the Father and sit at the right-hand side of the Father. Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, At that point in the psalm, David was prophesying about Christ. Well, then we get to the New Testament. And Jesus adds his voice to the choir, not only predicting his death, but also his resurrection. And all four of the Gospels, they, they create momentum all the way through. They get busier and busier and busier, always leading to the death of Jesus Christ. And this is what happens in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 8, we read, The Son of Man must be killed, and after three days will rise again. It's the words of Jesus. Mark chapter 9, Jesus again, The Son of Man will be killed, and after three days will rise. Mark chapter 10, Jesus again, The Son of Man will be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. But three days later, he will rise again. All the way through the Old Testament and the New, Jesus Christ was always prophesied about, he was always pointed to, and he was always pointed to in his life and his death and his resurrection. And Paul was a Jew, so he knew that. He knew that there was always one talked about who was going to come. He wasn't convinced it was Jesus to start off with. But then he became convinced. And one of the things that's held him then say right here in verse 20 that in fact Jesus rose from the dead. Because the Bible always claimed that one would come who would indeed raise from the dead. But that's not all. Number two, 
the Bible then records the resurrection as history, as fact. See, ever since the Enlightenment, people have been trying to explain the resurrection away as a piece of figurative literature. So people like to think of it as maybe a dream, or a picture, or a poem, or maybe a myth, or a legend. You know, those types of things. Legend, and you go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's you know, Easter Bunny, great. And people find to portray that the life and death of Jesus Christ is like that. But in the Gospels, they're books of history. They're actually history books. The reality of the four Gospels is that Jesus Christ is claimed not as figurative, but in his life and death and resurrection, it's recorded as history. And Paul knew those men. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Paul knows them. So he's not like looking on thousands of years later going, oh, I wonder if it's possible. Paul's sitting down with these dudes and going, hey, tell me again about everything that went on. And they're telling him again about everything that went on. And it's recorded to Paul, and indeed now us in the New Testament, as fact. And accordingly, the Gospels are written with accuracy and precision in mind. You ever wondered why we're told several times that Luke is a doctor? You know, they're not showing off. It's not like, oh yeah, this is... This will get more readers in. Oh, he's a doctor. Oh, let me buy the book. That's not the plan. They want to tell us he's a doctor because they want us to know he's a man of precision and a man of accuracy. So when he says that he's figured out and told him, he's recording them very carefully. And Paul knew him. And so Paul is able to write, in fact, Jesus Christ rose from the dead because he's interviewed and spent time with the very guys that saw it take place. New Testament, the four Gospels, record the resurrection as history. And what's incredible in that New Testament, which is the third point, is the sheer number of witnesses. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if there was just four dudes, my mates, that like claimed Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that probably wouldn't do it for me. You know, I, I mean, I'm not a fool. I'm not an idiot. If there's just four guys that I knew, and, and, and all four guys would like to inspire against me and decide, oh, just so you know, we saw Jesus, he rose from the dead. That probably wouldn't float my boat enough to give my life for this. And Paul's saying. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that over 500 people saw the risen Christ. It wasn't one, two, three, or four. It was over 500 people. That's amazing. Look with me again at 1 Corinthians 15, earlier on in the text, in verse 3 to 8. This is what he says. Listen. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one entirely born, he appeared also to me. That's incredible. I mean, just think about that sensibly and logically. If we turned this room in, in this moment into a court of law, and I wanted to convince you of something that you didn't think was very reasonable at all, I'm going to bring in witnesses. And in this case, I'm not just going to bring in one witness or two or three or four. I'm going to bring in 500 witnesses, all claiming that what I just told you is true. That's staggering. 
500 people saying, yeah, it's factual. I saw him. I encountered the risen Christ. Josh McDowell, a church historian, says it this way. I love this. He says, do you realise that if those 500 people were to testify in a court of law for only six minutes each, including cross-examination, you would have an amazing 50 hours of first-hand testimony. I love that. So tell me now if the resurrection is unreasonable. In a court of law, if you brought 500 people in, one by one, all claiming as fact, I saw him, I saw him, I saw him, after 50 hours, I think we would be unreasonable to then say, no, I don't believe it. Paul talks about this as fact because he knew these people. See, when this was written, it was written only 30 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason why Paul says in verse 6, in verse 6, most of whom are still alive, is because what he's in effect doing is saying, you know what? What are you going to ask them? Go talk to them. Paul can say, in fact, Jesus Christ rose from the dead because of the sheer number of witnesses. It's not only the sheer number. It's the way their lives are so transformed, having encountered the risen Christ. Number four, then, the transformation of the disciples. See, after Jesus died, the disciples were in disarray. They're not a bunch of old guys. They're a bunch of young guys. And so Ben, who was playing guitar today, how old are you, Ben? 19. Ben's 19. So the guy on guitar today, most of the disciples are Ben's age. So you've got these 12 good dudes, young guys. Probably wore caps like that. You know? <laughs> so just a bunch of young guys. You see, I think we have this picture in our minds sometimes of these really bunch of really wise old men, all these disciples of Christ. No, they're a bunch of young guys that have hung out with Jesus for a few years. But then when Jesus dies and they watch him die, they are freaked out. For as far as they were concerned, Jesus was going to go into Jerusalem, he was going to become a king, and he was going to overthrow the Romans and take the world. But instead, they see their saviour dragged away and crucified, and these bunch of young men are terrified. And so they huddle together in an upper room because they are scared. And yet just a few days on from that moment, they leave the upper room, these men leave the attic and they start to proclaim Jesus. They start to proclaim the gospel on the very streets of just a few days earlier. They didn't want to go against They were convinced that they'd be arrested and they would die like Jesus did. They didn't want that. But they leave the room and they start to go out into those very streets of Jerusalem and they start to proclaim the risen Christ, making it very clear to everybody, He's risen! He's risen! He's alive! This bunch of young men that were one minute scared are now transformed and they start to leave that upper room and start to proclaim Christ as risen. By one of them, they would go on to be killed for their faith. Some of them would be sawn in half. Some of them would be crucified. Some of them would be headed. Some of them would be driven onto stakes, covered in tar, and then set alive. And they would go through that, claiming all the time, Christ is risen. Why would you do that? Why? Why would you do that? The only reasonable expectation, the only reasonable answer to what has taken place in their lives is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. 
Because what is recorded for us is those young men sat in that upper room afraid. Jesus enters the room. And as he enters the room, boldness comes on them and they begin to want to go out and share the gospel. The only reason explanation for what has taken place in this transformation is they've encountered the risen Christ. That's not all. Number five, the transformation of skeptics. See, some may think, well, you know, the disciples, yeah, they might have, you know, been transformed, but they were his friends. They knew him and stuff like that. What about the skeptics? See, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking the earth, not everybody believed in him then. And we like to think now, people certainly think, people I encounter that, that don't believe in Jesus, say, oh, if I met him now and saw him do miracles, I'd probably believe. No, you wouldn't. People didn't then either. People saw him do miracles and they went, oh yeah, nice, nice trick. Walked away, completely uninterested. It's never interesting. Well, that's, it was the case then as well. People encountered Jesus, they still didn't believe in Jesus. And yet the New Testament tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he encounters a number of people, including skeptics, and those skeptics go on to become saved. And take his brother James, the brother of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what he'd be like? I certainly have, because I have a brother. What would it be like if your brother said, oh, by the way, I'm God? You know what I'd do? I'd give him a wedgie. That's what I'd do. You, know, you must be joking. Don't tell me you're God. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, who, who's dad? Father God. You know, I'd, just think, I'd just be completely, this is totally ridiculous. So imagine if your brother actually was to say to you, you're God. Well, James's reaction was exactly the same. Growing up with Jesus, he probably did give him a wedgie, and he just spent time with him. It's like, don't tell me you're God. You're just my brother. So in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, we see that, that Jesus' family were convinced that he was absolutely crazy. I think that's a reasonable response for this young man that claims to be God. In chapter 7 of John's Gospel, we read that his brothers never believed in him. They thought he was mad. And yet Jesus Christ, after rising from the dead, encountered his brother James. And Paul tells us that as he encountered James, James's life was radically transformed. Because encountering a resurrected brother helps you to believe in what he says. And as he encounters his brother, he believes and hits his knees and says, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And he puts his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. James, in a moment, became a Christian. A few years on from that moment when he became a Christian, he went to lead on the, flag, the flagship church in Jerusalem. And just a few decades later from that, he would die for the faith. He was driven onto a rooftop by the Jewish authorities. James is causing a stir in Jerusalem. Loads of people are starting to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. The Jewish authorities see James. They put him on a rooftop and they say, tell everybody here that what you are saying is a lie. He nods, looks at the people and starts to tell them about Jesus and how he's risen from the dead. They push him off the rooftop. He falls and they assume he falls to his death and he is badly broken up. But he picks up his head and he continues to tell them about the same gospel. The men run down the stairs, they start to stone him and beat him to death. And Eusebius, the second centurion historian, says even as they beat him to death, he was still praying for people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you do that? The only reasonable explanation 
is that James has encountered the risen Christ, his brother, and realised he's God. He is who he said he was. And Paul knows what a dramatic effect encountering the risen Christ can have on you, because Paul was the same. He prior to become a Christian, Paul of Tarsus was a passionate opposer of the Christian faith. In fact, he so passionately hated Christians that in Acts chapter 7, when we're introduced to Paul, we first find him carrying people's coats and their bags. He's just saying, listen, you can drop them off like me. While men and women and children are throwing stones at Stephen. And he says that Paul was watching that in heartily agreement and smiling. Paul was a Christian terrorist in the way he lived his life. And so he asks the the Jewish authorities, when the gospel begins to go out from Jerusalem to Damascus, he asks the Jewish authorities, hey, look, can I go on your behalf to find all those Christians and bring them back here so we can kill them? Well, they agree. Sure, you go. Go get them. Men, women, children, get them, drag them back here, and let's commit these people to murder. Paul's on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, and yet it says in the, in the Word of God that he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, he gives his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He realizes, you are the God that I've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Paul goes from terrorist to a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. He goes on to write the third of the New Testament. He plants tens and tens of churches in Europe and beyond into the known world and he goes on to be beheaded in 66 AD just outside on a road outside of Rome. Why would you do that? The only reasonable explanation is what Paul says happened. That he encountered the risen Christ. That he encountered one who caused his whole life to turn around. As he was going on to kill Christians, he encounters the Christ and that changes his whole life. Changes his whole life, even to death. The sixth reason, then, is the profound weaknesses of the various conspiracy theories. And Paul was well acquainted with all these. Don't you think when Paul was preaching the gospel and trying to plant churches, people would have been bringing these up? I would have been. I'd be like, oh, but Paul, you know, what about... So he was well acquainted with them all. But he always knew they were pretty bad. They were just poor and weak. And yet, just like every other serious event in history, there's conspiracy theories. And so there was this idea that Jesus had not actually died. That somehow, he hadn't really risen again, he just hadn't really died. So there wasn't any rising again because he hadn't died in the first place. Well, that's a crazy theory. And the reason why that's a crazy theory is because Roman centurions were professional executioners. By very nature, they gave themselves to killing people. And there was a general rule in the Roman centurion that if you bring somebody down from the cross and they're not dead, you're going on next. You made sure they were dead. And so that's why they stuck a spear in Jesus' side and it started to flow with water and blood separately, showing medically that yes, indeed, he was dead. But that idea that he wasn't dead at all, Paul knew that's crazy. There's no way that would have happened. Another conspiracy theory is that the disciples returned to the wrong grave after burying Jesus. It's probably one of the ones I would have used if I wasn't sure about it. Oh, I bet he went back to the wrong grave. He went back to the wrong grave and, oh, he's risen! No, it's just the wrong grave. You know, that's what they're saying. And that's why in the Gospel of Mark, 
Mark tells us very clearly, hang on a minute, Jesus was buried in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a very famous man and he had offered his grave to Jesus. He wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he was certainly wondering about the whole thing. And so Mark records it and helps us see, no, exactly. we knew which grave it was. It was Joseph of Arimathea. And so we went back there. That's where the guards were. That's where the stone was. That's where we went back. And the Gospel of Mark deliberately names the grave because these people were still alive when this was written. Well, go and have a look for yourself. See if you can find them. That is really blown out the water. Another idea was the disciples stole the body. Well, that's crazy because of what I said before. When Jesus was arrested and killed, the disciples were in disarray. They were afraid. They didn't go out of the room. Why would they have actually stole the body and then gone on to die for him? These young men were so afraid. So many things. Fourth conspiracy theory, the authorities stole the body. And I think this is the weakest of them all. See, post-resurrection, having encountered Jesus Christ, his disciples go out into the streets of Jerusalem and start to preach the gospel. And the very thing that the Jewish authorities were trying to quench started to really spread. And so if I'm the Jewish authorities, guess what I'm doing at that time? I'm bringing out the body of Jesus. That's what I'm doing. And he goes, here he is. Hasn't risen again at all. Be quiet. Go away. Yet the authorities never did because they haven't got the body. And the reason why they haven't got the body, Paul tells us, because he rose again. Because he's seen the risen Christ. My friends, just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. What Paul has understood and seen and grasped that caused him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as fact was all these things. The reality that the Bible had always claimed that this would happen, that the Bible had always pointed forward to one who would die and then rise again. The very fact that the Gospels then record it as, as fact and history, not myth, but as fact, written by people whose lives were going to be transformed by the risen Jesus Christ. The sheer number of witnesses then, the transformation of the disciples and the transformation of skeptics, along with the reality of the profound weaknesses of the various conspiracy theories, causes Paul to write in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So you may think, Corinthian church, that he hasn't. I'm telling you, he has. And I know it as fact. And I write this to you as one who will go on to die for this, along with many of my brethren, because in fact, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. My friends, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want you to know something. And it's simply this. Your Saviour, Jesus Christ, lives. He rose again. He's not dead and buried somewhere. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all of us. And so we're singing on a Sunday morning, and we're living for Jesus Christ. Don't lose heart in that. Is this, is this a real? It's a fact. That's what it is. This is something we can stand on as believers. We don't believe in a religion that has been written down on the back of a cereal package. We believe in a religion that is factual and true, and Jesus Christ lives. 
And you don't have to believe in something that is unreasonable. You can believe in something that is totally reasonable. How exciting is that, don't you think? Does that inspire you with faith? To want to press on and align yourself behind Paul and say, yet for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I want to do this because this is true. I pray it has that effect on you. If you're here today, though, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, which may well be some of you, I really want to ask you this. Having then examined the evidence this morning, what is your verdict? Just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean it's not reasonable. And I want to encourage you then, if you believe this, I want to encourage you with everything I've got then today, before you leave this building, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. See, Jesus Christ came and he always claimed to be God and he always claimed to be coming to seek and save the lost. He claimed to be coming on the greatest rescue mission ever told to make it possible for people to put their faith in him He made it possible by dying on the cross in your place, enduring the wrath of God in your place, enduring the punishment for your sin in your place so that you may have life and that in abundance. So that you may in this moment know what it is to be forgiven of your sin. Imagine that. Everything you've ever done and will do, washed clean. Reconciled to the one who made you adopted into his very family, knowing for sure that heaven is your home. Jesus Christ came and said, that's what I've come for. Don't harden your hearts to me. Put your faith in me. And in some ways he proved it was true by raising on the third day. By saying, listen, I told you I was God. Check it out. I've risen again. I'm still God. Put your faith in me as your Lord and Saviour. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you believe in your heart, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and you confess him as Lord, then you will be saved. Make that your confession today. Believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, that he died in your place, and that he rose from the dead and confess him then as your king. If you do that, you will be saved. And I urge you to do that. Don't leave this day unsure of what's going to happen to you. See, Easter in some ways is a great celebration. But Easter in all reality is also a terrifying day. It's a weekend where we remember the death of Jesus Christ. But in so many ways it's also a weekend where we remember that one day we'll be dead. And I think as people we try and ignore that. We try and push it out. We try and pretend that it doesn't even exist, ideally. And yet now and again we come into contact with death, maybe through a loved one, and it's in our face again. Easter should be a yearly reminder that one day we're all going back to the body. I want to encourage you, Jesus Christ came to give you life and that in abundance. Put your faith in him as Lord and Saviour and know that on that day you will not receive his wrath. You will receive his well done and you'll be going home. And what a day that will be. Lord, I do thank you that you indeed rose again. Lord, how glorious it is that we follow a king, a 
a king whose death could not hold him. You rose again victorious, and we worship now one who is alive, who is worthy of all our praise, who is worthy of us aligning ourselves behind, because you are not dead, you are alive. And Lord, I do pray today in this moment, would you encounter every one of us in the room? Lord, would we know you for ourselves? Would we know you not in a far off way, but would we know you in an intimate way? As Father, as Holy Spirit, as King. Lord, would you break in on every hard heart in this room? And would you change our lives? Lord, in the power of the resurrection, would you in your power change people's hearts? And would we all leave here worshiping you as Lord and Savior? Because you're worthy of it.